Welcome to the Observatory. I'm Jessica Helfand. And I'm Michael Beirut. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. In each episode, we talk about a few topics that are on our minds and in the air. So, Michael, the end is near. The end is near. <laughs> At least the end of the 2016 presidential campaign is near. It does feel like the end of days, actually. It does. But, uh, it's, it's, I mean, I think we can agree this has dominated the news for over a year. But, in fact, as of this recording, we're only a few weeks away from Election Day, which is November 8th here in the United States. So has it all been news, or is it just a lot of noise? Baratunda Thurston, who worked for The Onion and The Daily Show, calls Donald Trump a, quote, denial of service attack on the U.S. political system, <laughs> end quote. <laughs> but there's a lot going on, including this video called Quiet that juxtaposes that noise with the very act of voting. Have you seen that, Michael? Yeah, I saw it, and I just loved it. It, it just struck me dumb, maybe appropriately so. It's um, done by a uh, group called the Save the Day PAC, which is a uh, non-affiliated get-out-the- vote group, but obviously is advocating for the Democratic candidate. It starts with a woman at work at her desk um, in a beleaguered sort of uh, situation. Lots of activity, very noisy, people giving her stuff to do. And the soundtrack to all this is a montage of recorded speeches of Donald Trump getting progressively more histrionic as a bill. She finally close of business slips away. She enters the voting booth, pulls the curtain closed, and suddenly all is silent. And the only words that appear are, um, this is your moment. It just reminds us that at the end of the day, it'll all come down to that one moment, which I think is just kind of terrific. I think it's a very subtle thing reminding women that regardless of the men in their lives, uh, the pressures they may have to conform to one thing or another, they get to decide when they're alone in that voting booth. I thought it was really powerful. It turns out, I did not know this, Michael, maybe you knew this, that the United States is ranked 139th out of 172 countries in voter participation. I mean, it's really unbelievable, right? So so the uh, they're really kind of you know waging this war not against uh, the wrong candidate, although one might say that, of course, we're all waging our own war against <laughs> what the candidate we want in office, but, but they're really c- committed to fighting apathy and cynicism and confusion and all the things that keep people away from the polls. The first thing I saw from them, which I think a lot of people saw, was this very funny celebrity video with a bunch of celebrities saying, get out there and vote. And they promised to uh, produce a nude scene with uh, Mark Ruffalo in his next movie if everyone goes along with it. And it's Which, uh, produced which like, <laughs> like the quiet video, one might say both of these things are geared to women. Right. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. Maybe there are a lot of men out there. I guess there probably would yeah. be a lot of men out there that want no, Mark Ruffalo I, I, naked. Yeah, no, I, I, I enjoy that as much as anyone else, I suppose. But I think um, <laughs> this video was produced by no less than Joss Whedon, of all people. So these are really accomplished little cinematic jewels, among other things. And um, and it also, it just reminds me how of two things. One, these are following in a long tradition of political commercials, starting with the first kind of really modern, striking one that is always referred to as a landmark is the... Uh, famous uh, Daisy Girl commercial by Tony right. Schwartz in that was uh, in the uh, right. Johnson-Goldwater race. But even then, you had to be a filmmaker to know how to do that. I mean, arguably today, anybody can make a film on their smartphone and put it on YouTube, and if it goes viral, it goes viral, right? Indeed, There is yeah. just a chance that, that you know, you it's the whole idea of civilian uh, engagement and, and journalism and, and almost, uh, you know, activism through those kinds of very highly visual means is, I think, a very uh, recent 
uh, development. You know, the idea that commercials show on television about politicians, that really varies depending on um, where you live. I live in New York State, so I see no commercials for the presidential race. It's uh, assumed that it's going to go to Hillary, so I think all the commercial time is bought in the so-called swing states. What you do see, however, are all these... um, online videos that are intended to be viral. And, you know, and I think the Hillary campaign internal team has just been relentless about producing this viral content. And, and sometimes it actually seems clear to me, at least, that certain kind of like real-life events are almost being manipulated or staged or bent so that they're going to produce good viral video content. After the, um, uh, the vice presidential debate, which everyone thought Mike Pence won because Tim Kaine just kind of kept interrupting him and goading him in kind of a way that most people thought was kind of irritating. And I heard afterwards someone say, well, just watch what they do with that, though. And indeed, Kaine had one mission, seemingly, which was to tie Pence and his uh, more conventional Republican views to the more radical views of Donald Trump. And then, sure enough, there followed a video uh, from the Clinton campaign that just isolated all the times when uh, Pence's denying that Trump has said this, denying that Trump has said that, cut in with instances where Trump has actually said those very things. Then he realized, you know, all that debate was meant to do was sort of provide the raw material for a viral video that would be seen by many more people than would see the actual uh, debate. Supercut mashups really can completely retell a story in a different way. And that is, I mean, anybody just coming into this podcast cold just now, if you hadn't mentioned names, might have thought you were talking about a fight, yeah. like, <laughs> yeah, like a yeah, fight no. in a ring, right? No, no doubt. But, but of course, the difference between what, I mean, this may feel like a blood sport, and, it, and I think it certainly turned into a blood sport in many ways. But, but the thing that actually makes it uncanny is the degree to which we can, you know, shape and retell the stories based on these supercuts. But I, I have to say, too, in addition to the video content, which is fascinating and and rampant. Uh, There's been a lot of coverage in the news about design as it relates to politics and how we vote and why we're not voting on mobile phones. Now, you you might think if we can actually do everything else on mobile phones, we can deposit check by mobile phone that we should be able to vote. Apparently not. Apparently, says the Washington Post, uh, and and I'm going to quote them because I thought they said this really well, an effective voting mechanism must provide anonymity, the ability to vote independently for voters with disabilities, which I thought was fascinating, and a provision to check that the outcome is free from manipulation. Unlike a financial transaction, anonymity is so critical that voters cannot report errors in their candidate selection as they would fraudulent charges on a credit card. So I guess we're quite a while away still from voting on our phones. So there is something kind of amazing about the analog nature of voting in America. Um, every time, isn't there? Yeah, I mean, I just think like like when I think about how I spend my day, almost every day of the year, I'm doing all this stuff online, ordering things online, uh, reading the newspaper online, and then you end up standing in line. You walk up to, at least in in my local precinct, you kind of stand in line, you get to the head of the line, you look at one of your fellow citizens who has in front of him or her like a ledger with names on it. They find your name in that ledger. Based on the street you live. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the whole, you know, know, it's this big binder with paper in it. Then you're uh, sent in, at least uh, we don't have electronic voting in in, uh, Terrytown, New York. uh, And so you go into a voting booth to draw the curtain close and you are uh, 
recording your vote on a paper ballot. It's more like something happening 100 years ago than almost any other activity that I participate in, you know, outside of um, cooking. There's something quite charming about it. Uh, you know, and, and uh, you may recall, uh, I'm going to remind you if you don't, that in 2006, the midterm elections, uh, and then the 2008, which was Obama's first win, Winterhouse, our studio, we um, engaged in this project with the New York Times called the Polling Place Photo Project. And um, Aperture was part of it, the Times was part of it. But basically, we put this call out to anybody with a then pretty, you know, relatively newly minted thing, the smartphone with a camera. Uh, and the idea that wherever you were, you took a picture. Yeah, and this was, was way right before way before social networks. Right, yeah. way before social networks. And so what we ended up with was this pretty vast compilation of things that revealed all sorts of things like, you know, that you can vote in a church. Voting precincts have to do with all sorts of municipal and local guidelines about, you know, fire safety and access mm. and uh, municipal, uh, you know, census reports about where people live. And so some people vote in school gyms and some people vote in libraries and some people vote in garages and some people vote in churches and synagogues. And so we ended up with, with I think, you know, thousands of photographs. We had an exhibit uh, and uh, a website to de devoted to it. But, but I think you're right, Michael, that what was interesting about it at that time was that the, the, the sharing of visual phenomena was a, a relatively new thing. And so uh, it, it revealed a, as much to us as it did to the people who were, I think, themselves suddenly cognizant of the fact that where they were wasn't uh, maybe as important as who they were voting for, but it actually played a role. It was also a beautiful visual proof that all politics is local. There was something just so specific about each one of those polling places and so different about them and so characteristic of a uh, of where they were. Hey, we should link to those uh, images again because they really are beautiful. And they were really, really meant to be kind of a celebration of American democracy. Ten years on, it'll be interesting to look back and see uh, you know, how things were in those simpler times, perhaps. Which is sort of the opposite of uh, a lot of what's going on in election season, which is poll reporting and anticipation of things like the electoral map. Like a lot of people, I'm addicted to uh, the website 538, where it sort of does a poll of polls and then works out a uh, a statistical model of if you take all those polls, what um, percentage likelihood does each candidate have of winning? Um, and uh, the upshot in the New York Times has the same thing. And all of these things tend to net out to a single percentage number and a map where the states are all colored either red or blue or colors in between. And that map kind of changes, and the redness or blueness of the map tends to determine. Um, Who's ahead? Our, our friend Jason Kotke uh, posted on Twitter this week uh, that there's a new meme called What Would the Electoral Map Look Like If? And so people are, you know, spending just a great deal of time imagining uh, the, the possibilities of, you know, what would it look like in the time of Alexander Hamilton if he'd given away his <laughs> shot at the, no, well. at the White House? And, and what would it look like if it was held on, on an imaginary planet? And, uh, you know, some of these things are very funny. It started when uh, 538 put up a very simple thing saying this is what the electoral map would look like if only men voted, and this is what it would look like if only women voted. And it was, and it was actually really interesting, but then people started saying this is what it would look like if only, uh, you know, if only hedgehogs voted. Somebody actually made a, made a map of, you know, one dot to 500 goats, and he basically has, has mapped every <laughs> goat in America. Uh, there's a big concentration goats of goats in Texas. Big, big, big. Yeah. Yeah. No, there's a nice one where it says, uh, "This is what it would look like if only the states that together formed a smiley face voted." And then it just kind of like makes a smiley face out of the. Yes, which which all comes back to the uh, fact the that I think we're ready for this election to be over because it's 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 been yeah. It's please been God, painful. it just is. Um, I think those are just indications that uh, 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 that 
that not only um, some of the candidates, but the entire electorate is becoming just generally sort of unhinged. It, it feels like it's been going on for 2,000 years at this point, and um, it just can't be over fast enough as far as I'm concerned. So Michael and I have a new podcast. It's called The Design of Business, The Business of Design. And it's a series of interviews with people from different fields, uh, designers and people in business, uh, who talk about how design shapes and impacts their decisions. Hey, uh, Jessica, let's, 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 let's say the name the way we say it on the show. So what's oh, it let's called? Okay, okay. The Design of Business. The Business of Design. <laughs> See, there you go. It's a series of interviews with people from different fields, uh, different industries, designers, people in business, and how design shapes their business decisions and the outcomes of their interactions with others. And we're recording this up at the Yale School of Management and part of a course we're teaching there. And after our speakers who come each week speak to our students, we take them down to this state-of-the-art amazing recording studio uh, in the basement and we interview them. Yeah, and it's really fun because um, through the miracle of, uh, of technology, it appears often, it'll be, you, you can imagine that Jessica and I are sitting around a table talking to you right now, but often, um, and this may be the case right now, we are actually recording and remotely from different places. Uh, when we do our new podcast, we're together at a table sitting with a guest or guests, and uh, the conversation is really lively, really fun. Jessica and I both have always been fascinated by not just design as a visual discipline or as a, uh, as a craft, but by the way it interacts with the larger world. And that's an interest we share with so many people, and I assume nearly anyone listening to this podcast. Uh, in this new podcast, what we're able to do is bring in people from that larger world who could be accomplished designers or movie producers or restaurateurs or urban planners or um, uh, entrepreneurs and talk about how design affects what they're doing and how they take creativity and merge it with the demands of the marketplace, the um, practicalities of budgets and timelines, and more, most importantly, the kind of goals that they're hoping to achieve. And uh, the conversations we have in our classroom are fantastic, and this podcast is a way to share those conversations with a larger audience, uh, an audience that hopefully will be uh, um, you know, potentially infinite, but certainly um, bigger than the uh, uh, two and a half dozen people that we have in the classroom at Yale. You should be able to find our podcast in the iTunes store by searching The Design of Business, The Business of Design. And you'll always be able to find a link to it on our site. Go to designobserver.com slash designofbusiness. And if you hang on after this episode, at the very end, we've got a special treat, which is a sneak preview of The Design of Business, The Business of Design. We'll get an idea of... Uh, what the show's like, and a couple of voices from some of our amazing guests. Uh, speaking of podcasts, uh, we um, recently, me and Jessica, appeared on Track Changes. That's uh, this uh, podcast from the digital product shop Postlight. And Postlight is uh, run by these two brilliant guys, um, uh, Rich Ziade and Paul Ford. And the two of them together uh, uh, invited Jessica and I into a studio, and we had a great time talking to them. Uh, you had fun, Jessica. You seemed to. 
I did. It was a wonderful and interestingly like our new podcast. It was nice to be in the same room with you. Yeah. What I like about Paul and Rich is that they are um, really interested in how people who are uh, designers, people who are creative people can operate on all sorts of different levels. And in fact, Paul, for instance, is a programmer, but he's also, as some of our listeners may know, a brilliant writer. He really is interested in how um, designers can kind of keep multiple gigs going, you know, how you don't have to just kind of put your nose to the grindstone and do that one thing you do, but you can combine that with teaching, combine that with broadcasting or writing. And I think the two of them are examples of how you put that ambition into action. Uh, having listened uh, to the episodes they recorded with us uh, and then a bunch of other ones that they've done, uh, they are really, really inspiring. So we recommend that podcast as uh, something you should check out, not just to hear more of me and Jessica, but I think a lot of their guests, all their guests and all their conversations have really been great. We talked to them, in fact, for so long, the interview was posted as a two-part interview because we just couldn't shut up. Uh, but I think well, it's that... It like Kill Bill. They, there just was so much, uh, <laughs> so much action But they really are quite driven by the notion that what designers think about uh, is as important as what they make and that these are conversations that need to happen together and not separately, uh, which uh, makes me think of another thing we should tell our listeners, which is that you and I are doing an online masterclass called Thinking Like a Book Designer. Very specifically chosen those words, Thinking Like a Book Designer, uh, because it's really about you, the book designer, as much as the book you make. And we'll be doing this on Creative Live. Uh, the class will be streaming for free at noon Eastern time, which is 9 a.m. Pacific time on Friday, October 21st. Yeah, and this should really be a fun adventure in mass online teaching, I guess. But uh, um, but it's also just a way to expose our viewers and people to tune in, to not only to the way that I think about designing books, the way Jessica thinks about designing books, but we've really surveyed a bunch of our most favorite colleagues and done a little bit of walk through history to see how it's been done through the ages. So I think it's going to be a really rich, interesting experience and uh uh, will provide um, uh, plenty of ways to uh, uh, tune into it if you just kind of keep uh, following us uh, on social media or visit our website. That's so going to be uh, Creative Live. And so, uh, again, streaming for free, noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, uh, Friday, October 21st. So between making this recording and our online masterclass for Creative Live, uh, Michael and I are going to be in Las Vegas at the AIGA Design Conference. Vegas, baby, ba Vegas, baby. Vegas. <laughs> I would say I would say what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, but in fact, <laughs> no. Uh, au contraire. No. <laughs> Design Observer actually will be announcing this uh, very proudly. We have a new partnership with AIGA. We are moving the Design Observer archives to AIGA.org and once again returning to AIGA the custody of the 50 Books, 50 Covers competition, which started in 1923 at AIGA. Yeah, so this is a return to our roots, uh, uh, and maybe it was always meant to be, because um, Design Observer, our website, was unveiled at a keynote presentation that Jessica and the late Bill Drantel, her husband and our partner, gave in Vancouver, a keynote presentation they both gave in Vancouver when the AIGA conference was there in 2003. Um, that talk, which I still remember vividly to this day, a dozen plus years later, was called Culture is Not Always Popular. 
And uh, I remember, Jessica, you were talking about the difference between thinking and making, the relationship between those two things, and the fact that I think you could argue then that there was really a pronounced anti-intellectual strain in the design community. Is that still true today, do you think? I don't think it is at all true. And I'm basing that assumption on what I see in my students. One of the things that I think really helped designers and, and I think that the culture of design, the professional culture of design uh, shift is that uh, I think all of this online posting, blogging, and social networks uh, made it possible for people to proselytize uh, on an ongoing basis, which required them to think. And so that thinking involved how you project yourself, how you present your work, how you share your ideas in public, how you dispute or encourage or retweet or hashtag or whatever the ideas of others. And so I think that there's been a nice kind of uh, cultural fallout from the last decade of social media, which is that uh, people started to realize that in order to uh, produce work that mattered in the world, they needed to participate in this larger social stream, this ecosystem, if you will, of other kinds of ideas. But at the time we did, culture is not always popular. That was a different backlash. And I, I think looking back, what I was feeling and thinking, what certainly we were considering at that time was that suddenly there was this accelerated nature by which designers had to uh, familiarize themselves and incorporate tools and software and hardware into their studios. And I, I think that this culture of making came out of that. So there was this whole period when we talked about handcraft and we talked about drawing and, and all of these things are extremely important. They're never going to go away. But we started to feel at that point in the early 2000s that there was such an emphasis on, uh, on surface and on uh, a, a kind of a non-intellectual engagement with ideas that we were starting to see this, this split, this bifurcation in the field, that you were either a theorist or an educator or a writer or you were a maker and, and, and we were really struggling in our own practice at that time uh, and, and as people who always wrote and published in, in concert with the things we made in our studio in trying to kind of uh, reshape the, or reset the coordinates of that conversation so that uh, they weren't mutually exclusive. Our younger listeners, they may find this, I don't know, hard to believe or it seems like ancient history, but you know, when I began my professional career back in the 80s, there, there was like very little kind of self-examination of what we were doing, why we were doing it. The language to discuss these things wasn't really available. And I remember that was, that went on for some time. And it really, you know, in a way, uh, a watershed happened at uh, another AIGA conference, the last one that happened in Las Vegas uh, back in 1999. I was president of AIGA then, and I distinctly remember that at the same time of that conference was the republication of a manifesto called uh, First Things First, which was a call to arms for designers to examine what they were doing, why they were doing it, and to question their role. And, and it had originally, just yeah. to, just originally, to originally in the early 60s, in the early 60s yeah. Ken Garland had written something. And yep. so that was sort of revived at this point as an examination of what our role was in terms of a larger purpose. Yeah, and Callie Lassen and uh, uh, with the encouragement of Tibor Coleman, in fact, had republished uh, a new version, an updated version in Adbusters. And, I, I, and uh, Jonathan Barnbrook designed a big billboard on the Las Vegas Strip that said, uh, designers beware of corporations that ask you to lie for them. To kind of throw this uh, gauntlet down in the face of you know, the over-the-top, uh, you know, uh, maelstrom of post-industrial capitalism and full luxury that Las Vegas represents. The following decade then saw the rise of all these design blogs, including our own, and really an ongoing conversation about what we're doing, why we're doing it, that really hasn't ceased to this day. <laughs> uh, you really want to know, huh? 
So um, is there anything you've spotted in the last couple of weeks that you've liked that you want to share with me and our audience? Well, I posted an article, actually a two-part uh, essay on Design Observer last week about uh, the work of a painter who is very important to me. Uh, his name is David Pease. Mm. He was for many years the dean of the School of Art at Yale. I grew up across the street from him as a very, very little person. Uh, and so I have very early memories of walking into a very big house and the smell of turpentine uh, and this sort of wondrous aroma of things that mysteriously happened in the back of their house where David and his wife Julie each had their studios. So Jessica, was he the first um, artist you met as a little kid? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was like learning to ride my two-wheeler and, you know, going into his house for a snack. So, yeah. Oh, how wonderful. So fast forward to 2016. Uh, he's got a very little show of paintings. This is a body of work he's been working on since he retired uh, as dean, which he did, I think, around 2000. Uh, so it's about, it represents about 15 years of work. Uh, he, as time has gone on, has become more and more like a graphic designer, and our joke, his and mine, is that I've become more and more like an abstract painter. Uh, so we meet somewhere <laughs> in the middle, and uh, in preparation for writing this essay, which goes, uh, which is in the catalog for the show, uh, which is here at Yale, uh, I um, made several studio visits, about, about half a dozen studio visits over the summer, and I have to say, that was a really big uh, moment for me. Mm. So, uh, you know, he's a generation older than I am, but I am entering the next phase of my life. My youngest child just went to college, and to be able to witness a person's practice in the studio, the dedication, the meticulous method by which he makes work, contemplates work, organizes his work, labels his work, and shares his work, uh, it, it was in and of itself a really fascinating experience. Secondly, uh, the work itself uh, comes about by virtue of a very uh, interesting process of note keeping and mark making yeah, and yeah. folders full of documentation about trips he takes. The paintings themselves are, he calls them slot paintings. They're these little sort of hieroglyphic marks where he, he marks time and space. They very much come out of, of his fascination with grids. Just an incredible drafts person, an incredible thinker, big collector. So I, uh, I always run into him at ephemera fairs and paper fairs. But he's he's able to make sense of the world in a way that's pictorial and iconic and uh, kind of visceral and emotional, but but very much his own. Um, I, I will say that uh, he he spoke to my students last week, and the students were very discomfited by the work. And I really, I really, yeah. yeah, they really were. And I, it was interesting because he spent a lot of time talking about how he comes up with a narrative. He's very interested in what he calls the chance operation which is a Marcel Duchamp mm -hmm. idea of, you know, he, he'll roll the dice and every third slot is blue because he rolled a three. Uh, and, the, and the students, I think, were, were very unsettled by the n nature of something that was so abstract, but that had such a specific narrative. Mm. Uh, and it was great. It became an incredible talking point for me with them to, to get them to understand, you know, what is the relationship between narrative content uh, and, and non-objective content. And uh, uh, apropos, I'll just say this as I wrap this little diatribe up, uh, there's a wonderful piece this week in the New York Times that Holland Cotter wrote about the new Agnes Martin retrospective at the Guggenheim. And he, he said that he's always trying to explain to people what abstract painting is. And people say, I don't understand it. What does it mean? Why don't I get it? And he said that when she was asked that question, Agnes Martin used to say, you just stare at it for a very long time. Like, like she really defended this position that it's not, it, everything doesn't have to be fed to you like, like a Netflix series, right? Like you just look at it. Mm -hmm. And I think it's just an apropos thing to say on this podcast because 
That's what designers do. We look at stuff. We look hard. We look deep. We're relentless. We, that's why we call design observer design observer. It's why we're the observatory. I think that kind of just, you know, no-nonsense uh, observation about a thing is at the core of what design really is. And so maybe at the end of the day, uh, it's why I love Octus Martin. It's certainly why I love David Pease. Uh, and the essays are on Design Observer along with selections from the exhibit. Uh, if, and we'll put a link on our, our site. Jessica, did you know what time of year this really is? This is baseball playoff season. I did not know that. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. Thank you for outing oh, me as the as the well, non-sports nerd that I am. Permit me to alienate you from your own podcast with my Thank you. following recommendation. <laughs> um, I um, uh, I happened upon this website I was on uh, hitherto unfamiliar with called VictoryJournal.com, and Victory Journal is a um, a website that sort of is to sports what Design Observer is to design. It kind of explores the world between sports and high and low and popular culture in a way that I think is really engaging. So I really spent some time at this site. But what brought me to the site is this amazing short film that's called The Last Best Plane Ride Ever. And uh, what this is is a um, an animation by a guy named James Blagden. Uh, and what Blagden does is he's uh, interviewed um, some players from the 1986 New York Mets about a plane ride that was taken after they won the pennant in Houston, Texas. Uh, and this is a really famous game that I remember distinctly as if it happened yesterday. Uh, they were um, going up against the Houston Astros to uh, win the National League pennant. The winner of that series would go up against the uh, American League winner that turned out to be the Boston Red Sox. And it was the sixth game of a seven-game series. The Mets, if they won this game, they would clinch the series. If they lost, they would have to face this uh, ferocious, terrifying pitcher who was on a hot streak named Mike Scott. So it's just, there was this kind of like sense they had to win this game or else they were going to lose the seventh game. The game went on for 16 innings. Jessica Helfand, a normal baseball game, goes for nine innings. However, if it's tied in the ninth inning, it goes on to subsequent innings until one team actually wins. Thank you for and clarifying. So this game went on for 16 innings. It was one of the longest uh, playoff games ever, uh, ever uh, in history. And it was just really, really kind of like a thrilling, crazy game. It was also played in the 80s, and the Mets then were a team that was just as emblematic of the 80s as anything out of a Bret Easton Ellis novel, American Psycho, <laughs> Wall Street. It was like they just were so... Um, uh, uh, it was just a crazy, like, like character-filled, um, braggadocio-led, um, kind of arrogant, charming, you know, lovable, despisable team. And this little film is an account of the plane ride they took back after that 16-inning uh, game. Blagden has this fantastic style, which is sort of a little bit like a um, Beavis and Butthead style. It's like, you know, it's really barely animated, but really funny kind of like line drawings. He has live interviews with Lenny Dykstra, Kevin Mitchell, Dwight Gooden, and Daryl Strawberry. And they're all just kind of describing in wonder as if they're recounting 
this like long lost Edenic wonderful experience they had up in the sky at 30,000 feet when they were just just basically um, destroying the inside of a plane by like going crazy. There's like a food fight. They're ripping out the center seats of of, uh, of aisles to kind of create tables upon which they can play cards. It just sounds completely insane. And then they're greeted when they land uh, at four in the morning uh, in New York with a huge throng of fans. They're almost like falling down the stairs because they're so drunk and drugged. And uh, the whole thing is just kind of hilarious. Um, even if you don't know anything about baseball, um, the, 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 this uh, best last best plane ride ever, it's not really about baseball. It's about what happens when a bunch of young men are, have just been uh, up against something too long and just need to let go. And uh, they say in it that um, today you couldn't do that because, uh, you know, it would all be caught on social media. It would immediately become scandalous and uh, yeah, everyone's just more well-behaved now, which I think is for the good. So it's, uh, it's a, you can look at it as a dark cautionary tale. You can look at it as uh, those were the days. You can look at it a lot of uh, different ways, but uh, I, I really recommend it. The Observatory is a podcast from Design Observer. Our website is designobserver.com. You can find links there to things we discussed on today's show, including the paintings of David Pease. If you like what you heard today, please tell your friends about The Observatory or go to iTunes and rate us for leave a review. Between episodes, keep up with Design Observer on Facebook and on Twitter. You can subscribe to The Observatory on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcast. Go to designobserver.com slash the observatory. That's designobserver.com slash the observatory. And if you're not listening already, please tune in to Design Matters with Debbie Millman and our new podcast, The Design of Business, The Business of Design. Design Observer has a new home at AIGA.org, the website of the Professional Association for Design and Designers. Teddy Blanks wrote our theme music. Our producer is Blake Eskin. Talk to you soon, Jessica. See you in Vegas, baby. Okay, as promised, here's a special treat, a preview of the design of business, the business of design. Okay, Jessica, I'm going to say a word, and I want you to say the first thing that pops into your head. Here we go. Design. Black turtleneck. Round glasses. Steve Jobs. Kerning. Aeron chair. Pretension. Helvetica. Touche. <laughs> okay, Mike, I got one for you. Here's a word. You ready? First thing that comes into your mind. Business. Microsoft Excel. Microsoft PowerPoint. Spreadsheets. Briefcases. Balance sheets. Men in suits. Women in heels. Women in suits. <laughs> men, men in heels. Oh, I wish. That's a different yeah, podcast. Exactly. <laughs> Welcome to the design of business. The business of design. Where we introduce you to people from all over the world, from different industries and disciplines. We're all here to talk about the transformative role that design plays in their business. And within five minutes of getting on the phone, yeah. Julian said to me, well, really... If I'm honest, my ambition is to become HBO for books. And I started laughing. I'm Jessica Helfand, a designer and educator and co-founder of the website Design Observer. And I'm Michael Beirut. I'm also a co-founder of Design Observer, and I'm a partner at the design firm Pentagram. Jessica, you've been in airports, right? 
Uh, I've been in a few. So you've been in those bookstores they have in airports. They always have like a bunch of business books, and they've got some books that are about creativity and business. You can tell them how. They have uh, those embossed covers with silver things on them, like lightning bolts. And light bulbs. And lightning bolts on light bulbs. How to get ideas that will Quickly. transform your business and be creative. And if you open them up, and I have, um, they'll have the six-point plan for doing this, the seven point checklist for doing that listicles bullet listicles, points. bullet points and we're trying to move beyond checklists and get deeper and the way you get deeper is we're inspiring by example we found people that have actually done amazing things where design intersects business in these hotels you're made to be so welcome that i think people have the opportunity to approach provocative art in a way they might not elsewhere the thing that makes design exciting and business exciting and design and business together exciting are the people that make it happen. So this show is us interviewing people that we uh, adore and admire and respect and even envy because they're in the trenches doing the real work. One billion people worldwide watch the Oscars. So that was the largest global moment for LGBT equality in the history of the world by far. So that's the impact that a story can have if you tell it well. The Design of Business, the Business of Design, is recorded at the Yale School of Management as part of our course there, 12 Design Ideas That Change the World. So tune in, and if you like what you hear, please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or however you take your podcast. So come back next time when you can hear social design maverick John Bielenberg talk about thinking wrong and how to make design that really matters. I think it first started when I was going to school at RIT and I got thrown out for not rendering Helvetica properly. See you then.